Let us take our Bibles out at this time, and we're going to turn to the Gospel of Mark. Mark's Gospel, chapter 5, and we are going to read, beginning in verse 21 of chapter 5, and we're going to read then through the end of the chapter this morning. Mark Chapter 5, beginning in verse 21, together let us hear the word of the Lord. And when Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered about him, and he was beside the sea. Then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name, and seeing him, he fell at his feet and implored him earnestly, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her so that she may be made well and live. And he went with him, and a great crowd followed him and thronged about him. And there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for twelve years, and who had suffered much under many physicians, and had spent all that she had, and was no better, but rather grew worse. She had heard the reports about Jesus, and came up behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. For she said, If I touch even his garments, I will be made well. And immediately the flow of blood dried up, and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. And Jesus, perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him, immediately turned about in the crowd and said, Who touched my garments? And his disciples said to him, You see the crowd pressing around you, and yet you say, Who touched me? And he looked around to see who had done it. But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him, And told him the whole truth. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. While he was still speaking, there came from the ruler's house some who said, Your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? But hearing what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, Do not fear, only believe. And he allowed no one to follow him except Peter and James and John, the brother of James. They came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue, and Jesus saw a commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly. And when he had entered, he said to them, Why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. But he put them all outside and took the child's father and mother and those who were with him and went in where the child was. Taking her by the hand, he said to her, Talitha kumi, which means, Little girl, I say to you, Arise. And immediately the girl got up and began walking, for she was 12 years of age, and they were immediately overcome with amazement. And he strictly charged them that no one should know this and told them to give her something to eat. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Dear Lord, we are so grateful to you that you have given your word to us. We are so grateful that we have it, that you have, that you have preserved it, Lord, that we are able to, to open it and to read it even today. We pray now that you would bless our time in your word. We pray that you would uh, grant to us understanding, Father, uh, as we, we consider this passage. We pray, Lord, that your spirit would illumine our hearts and our minds and help us to know what you have for us in this passage today, O oh God. Bless the one who preaches, bless us who hear, and may everything glorify you, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. 
You can go ahead and be seated. Have you ever had a problem, ever been dealing with something, looking at a, a problem, a person, or a situation that you see no hope of ever finding a resolution to? No answer to seems to be in sight? Or perhaps you can think of a, a person who seems uh, maybe irredeemable and to the point where you think that they are without hope. And such people, such situations, we sometimes will describe as being a lost cause, a person or, or a thing that can no longer hope to, to succeed or to be changed for the better, a lost cause. Well, this morning, beloved, we are going to be reminded again, again that in the mind of God, in the realm of the actions of God, that thankfully there is no such thing as a lost cause. That as Jesus himself said, with God all things are possible. That is to say that God is the God of lost causes. That's the point of the passage that's before us this morning. And Mark, did you notice it as we read? Especially, I bet Stephen did, as he's even now, I know, looking forward to, to lunch. Uh, but did you notice that Mark, this morning, is serving up to us another one of his rhetorical sandwiches? Maybe an appetizer for us this morning. Uh, like we've seen, we've talked about in the past, two stories Two different stories, but connected stories. He starts one, brings it to a certain point, leaves it, brings up another story, follows through that story, and then at the end of that story goes back to the first story. So you've got two uh, slices of bread and the, the filling in the middle. That is structurally, again, what we have in this passage. Now, I said we are reminded about God being the God of lost causes because if we think about it, as we've been going through these recent passages, Mark has already given us several instances of this fact that God is the God of lost causes. He can, with a word, resolve problems that in our view and in our, according to our ability, they have already passed from the realm of possibility into the realm of a lost cause. In his healing of a man with a withered hand, his healing of a man with total paralysis, his casting out demons from people, even a man we saw last week who was in such a miserable state, indwelt by not one demon, but a legion of demons. All of those would be considered lost causes by the time Jesus comes to address them. But Christ has shown himself to have authority, to have ability in all of those situations. And as part of this, this morning I'm going to suggest to you that we are all lost causes if we think about ourselves outside of Christ. But the good news is that God is able to rescue us. To rescue us from the very worst of situations 
and to rescue us and, and is able to work in any of the situations that we struggle with this morning. And that will all be taught to us through our text today. This episode that we are looking at today occurs after Jesus has left the, the country of the Gerasenes where the demon-possessed man was. They've come back over the, the Sea of Galilee. They have come back to their starting point. And while we're not told explicitly to where they have returned, everything points to their coming back to Capernaum, Jesus' base camp of his ministry during this time. And as we would expect, we don't find a real surprise here that as soon as he arrives, verse 21 tells us that a great crowd gathered about him. And as soon as they do, as this, this crowd is around Jesus there uh, by the shore, again it says that he was beside the sea, we read that someone comes to him. Someone comes up to him and falls at his feet. An interesting parallel, right? Because when he had gone over to the eastern shore of the lake, the first thing that we read about was that someone, this man that was possessed by these demons, came running up to Jesus and fell at his feet. And we see the same thing here. A man comes and he falls down at Jesus' feet. Only this man has come of his own free will and for a very different purpose than the man on the eastern shore of the Sea of Galilee. The man that has come is referred to here in our text as one of the rulers of the synagogue. Now each synagogue, those those places in Israel, Jewish areas where there were Jews living, those synagogues that served sort of like a church where they could go and they would hear the the Torah read, the Word of God read, they would hear it explained, they would pray. Uh, In these synagogues, and there could be several in, in a town, every synagogue would have one or more people assigned in it that were referred to as the ruler of the synagogue. These were lay people, not rabbis or or priests or anything. They were lay people, and their job description was very broad. It covered everything from taking care of the physical arrangements of the building to uh, selecting a portion of Scripture to be read and often to choosing the one who would read the text. The ruler of the synagogue was a person of some status in the community, The Bible mentions that there's only one, or mentions only one synagogue in Capernaum, and one of the rulers of that synagogue was this man who is called by name Jairus. And the reason that I mention this about the ruler of the synagogue and his position is that Jairus, then as the ruler of the synagogue, was very likely present if not presiding, in the synagogue when Jesus taught in the synagogue there in Capernaum. Chapter 121 says he did that. When Jesus, later in that chapter, cast out a demon from a man who had come into the synagogue. And later he healed a man with a withered hand in the synagogue. Jairus was probably there. So he was familiar with Jesus' ability to heal. And through the the midst of the crowd that morning, He comes to Jesus, and he comes with a very desperate need and with a very desperate request. 
In verse 22, the text says that then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name, and seeing him, he fell at his feet and implored him earnestly, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her so that she may be made well and live. Once more, a very vivid description that Mark gives us of this, of this man coming to plead his cause to Jesus. It says that he fell at Jesus' feet and that he implored him earnestly. Obviously, then he, he exhibits a great love, of course, and a, speaks in very enduring terms of his poor daughter, his little daughter. We read later that she's 12 years old. And he conveys the, the seriousness of the situation. He says, my little daughter is at the point of death. And that phrase, as, as our text has it translated here, the point of death, that's a good translation. Because this little girl, this 12-year-old girl, is not just sick. She is not just very sick. But this phrase that, that Mark uses here in the original, it's a very strange kind of phrase. And it, it contains the word in the phrase, the word from which we get the word eschatology, which is the study of in things, the study of last things. She literally has the last, is what the man says. Which is a phrase that seems to mean is at death's door, as we would say. She is at the very end of her life. She is not expected to survive. In fact, if we read Matthew's account, it's possible that Jairus fully expects that, that by this time she may have already died from the time that he left the house. That's how bad she is. That's how much of a lost cause she is. There is no hope for her unless... Unless, the man reasons, unless Jesus can come in time and speak to her as he spoke to the paralytic that day at Peter's house. Unless Jesus can come and touch her, Jairus thinks, as I've seen him do with others. And his faith in, in, in Christ and in Christ's ability and in Christ's authority over sickness rises up in the depth of his despair. Hope beyond hope that what is to him a lost cause may not be a lost cause to Christ. So he says, come and lay your hands on her so that she may be made well and live. And Jesus, we are told, went with him. What a love Jesus had for people including, even especially, I think, children. What compassion our Lord showed. Here, in the midst of ministry, in the midst of, of whatever he, he was doing with this crowd around him, this man comes and makes this request, and Jesus puts everything else on hold and goes with this man. Jesus has time to meet this man's needs. And Mark notes that the crowd, well, they're right along with them, they're going to follow right along, of course, and see what Jesus will do. A lost cause? Maybe. Maybe to others. But Jesus is the God of lost causes. Now Mark 
masterfully here builds the tension of what Jesus will do, what he may do. Will he get there in time? Will he be able to heal her? Will the girl die? But just as the group heads off towards Jairus' house, Mark pauses there. He leaves that story hanging. He switches scene. The setting is the same, but he moves the focus, Mark does, of the record. Because there's another person in the crowd that day, another person whose situation would be considered a lost cause. Someone who considered her own situation as a lost cause, but who decides to come to Jesus and to appeal to him for help because she's heard of what Jesus can do. So she comes to him, and Mark describes this woman's situation. And like the man over in the the country of the Gerasenes, it's a miserable picture. Not here because, not because of demonic activity, like that was, but because of a medical condition that this woman has. Verse 25 says, There was a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years. Some translations say a hemorrhage. This woman has a condition that has caused her to suffer from serious bleeding over a time of 12 years. In verse 29, in the original verse 29, Mark uses a word that describes this as a condition of torment, a condition of suffering. For 12 years, this woman has been in this situation. And if that, as if that were not enough this, for this poor woman, Mark also tells us that the treatment that she has received by the physicians is quite literally worse than the disease. Verse 26 says that she had suffered much under many physicians. And we can only imagine what the state of medical care was for a situation such as hers in the first century. Apparently this woman was in such agony from this that she went from doctor to doctor, from physician to physician to try to be cured of this. And apparently, like today, that was an expensive enterprise. Cures were expensive. Doctors were expensive. Medical care was expensive. You know, today we certainly hear of people, we know of people, who go broke, who lose all of their money and their savings, their investments, all gone to attempt to to effect a cure, find a cure for some disease. And in the time, with the knowledge and the the medical um, knowledge, the techniques that they had in that day, this woman was a lost cause. Her disease was, in that day and time, incurable. And Mark records, gives us that picture of her, just like we looked at the picture of the the demoniac, the demon-possessed man, last week. Mark in describing this woman, just sort of piles up these descriptors that show us just the situation, the lostness of the cause. She had a discharge of blood for 12 years. She suffered much under many physicians. She spent, he says, all that she had. 
And as a result, she was no better, but rather grew worse. And if that is not bad enough, like with the demon-possessed man from across the lake, her condition that she had renders her ceremonially unclean. With all that that includes, we talked about that last week. Leviticus 15 goes into detail about this type of situation and about the uncleanness and what was necessary for her. If you want, you can read that and get a better idea of of that. But in her unclean, ceremonially unclean state, she should not even be out among others. She shouldn't be in this crowd this day. Anyone who touched her or touched anything that she had touched, according to Leviticus 15, would be unclean themselves that whole day. But she, like Jairus, is desperate. She is otherwise without hope. And verse 27 says that she had heard the reports about Jesus. That he could heal all manner of diseases. This is an interesting, this this sandwich that that Mark gives us here is, is interesting in the differences. There's so many differences between Jairus and this woman with these stories put together. Jairus is a man. She is a woman. Jairus is named in the story. She is not. He is a man of some reputation in the city. She is like typically, probably, an outcast. He comes boldly. She sneaks through the crowd behind Jesus. He comes face to face with Jesus and makes his request. She comes up from behind. He calls Jesus to come to his home. But the woman hopes to remain anonymous, to merely touch his garment and then slip away. But what really matters in this story is the way in which they are the same. They both come to Jesus with a lost cause. And they both come, as we read about the woman doing, Mark says, because she had heard the reports about Jesus. They both come believing that Jesus can answer their request. And Jesus, in both cases, shows himself to be the God of lost causes. First, considering the woman. Since Jesus has healed others, this woman knows and she's heard about, with a touch, it appears that she reasons that if she can but touch him, that she too will be healed. She doesn't even have to touch him, just his garment. It's interesting, by the way, that Jesus healed in so many different ways in the Gospels. So that we can't be tempted to say, this is how Jesus heals. But rather, now with a touch, now from a distance, now with a word, now with mud made from spit, to those with faith, to those with friends with faith. So many ways, but always the same result. Immediate, full healing. And this woman comes with faith that just a touch will do it. In verse 28, For she said, If I touch even his garments, I will be made well. What a faith she has. 
Not I might, not I hope. She says, I know that I will. I will be made well. Just on a a human level, just seeing her faith is, is encouraging to us. Now, there may also have been some superstition mixed in here. There was a view during this day that, that people of great importance, that if you could touch them, that you could receive some of what they, they have. And so it could be that she is mixing a little bit of that in with this. Just, I just need to touch him. That's not teaching. Jesus never had that happen before. But that could be the case. Mark doesn't make any judgment here on her orthodoxy of her approach. Neither does Jesus, by the way. And as this woman then presses through the crowd, slowly but surely making her way toward Jesus, we read that she finally, with one last push, makes her destination and she reaches out her hand from behind Jesus and touches his garment. And the moment she does, two things happen. First... She's healed instantly, and she knows it. Verse 29 says, And immediately the flow of blood dried up, and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. Again, on a a human level, how wonderful is this? We can pause and consider just how this woman would have felt at this moment having spent the last 12 years in this, this torment. And having, if you'll pardon the expression, blood or resources dry and suffered under many failed or false cures. Now in an instant, that's all in the past. That's all behind her. The lost cause of this woman is just a horrible memory. Because she has come into contact with Jesus. The second thing that happened concerns Jesus himself. Verse 30 says that Jesus perceived in himself that power had gone out from him. Now we have to be careful there. We have to be sure that we don't read that and think that somehow Jesus has this limited charge of healing power within him like a battery. And when she touches him, his his power meter dipped a little. Jesus' ability to heal this woman comes from who he is, not what he has. But he knows that someone has touched him with a special purpose, with a special intent, with faith to receive healing. And he turns around, verse 30 tells us, and said, who touched my garments? And if you picture the scene, I have to admit a bit of amusement here, an agreement with the the response of the disciples. The disciples say, you see the crowd pressing around you, And yet you say, who touched me? Uh, Jesus, there's a lot of people touching you. The crowd is pressing in on you. The the word says and the word means pressing in. The idea is of being hardly able to move because of, of the bodies being pushed together as the crowd sort of moves along. That's the picture. But Mark records that, that Jesus looked around that he's searching the crowd for who touched him. Now, of course, a little Christology lesson here, of course Jesus in his divine nature, Jesus we know, 
is God made flesh, God taking on our human nature. He had a 100% divine nature and a 100% human nature together in one person. And Jesus in his divine nature knew who touched him and why. He knew everything about her. But the human nature of Christ didn't. And so he searches the crowd for, for whoever touched him. But he has a reason. She thinks he has a reason too. Only hers is not the same as his. She is probably expecting a rebuke. If he knows her, if she is made known to him, then she is, he is going to know her situation. He is going to know that she is unclean and that she just touched him. So she expects a rebuke. Again, she's not supposed to be out in public, let alone in a crowd, let alone touching people. But she comes, verse 33 tells us that that she comes and it says that she fell down before him and told him the whole truth. Everything we've read and probably more. You see, Jesus wanted to do more than just heal her anonymously. That's why he wants to know. He wants to find who this is. He wanted her not just to be healed by him, but he wanted her to encounter him. To know that she was not just a lost cause to him. Nor was she just an anonymous healing to him. She was a person. A beloved person. And so instead of a a reprimand or a lecture... Jesus looks at her and says, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. By the way, when he says your faith has made you well, we know that he didn't mean that, that faith is some magic spell or power as it's sometimes portrayed. But her faith, her trust, her belief that Christ could heal her was drove her into the crowd that day, disregarding the ceremonial regulations and believing that if she could just get to Christ, she would be healed. Her desire for healing and wholeness and deliverance, well, it is the desire for deliverance. It's very interesting here that that the word that is used there in verse 34 where Jesus says, daughter, your faith has made you well. That word that's used is a word that can mean to be made well in the physical realm. It's also the word that is translated saved or salvation in the scripture. And she receives this not by, not by her faith, but by Christ through the instrument of her faith. And though I think the the primary focus of this word has to do with her physical healing, it seems that there's more possibly to it. Jesus dismisses her with a benediction. Go, not just go in your healing, but he says go in peace. Go in peace. What a meaningful statement 
Because if there was one thing that this woman had not had for the past 12 years, it was peace. Now she has it. Maybe she has it on more than just a physical level. We're not told that. But he bids her to go in peace. He pronounces the healing. She had experienced it. He now pronounces it. And remember who else is in the crowd? Someone who is leading the crowd and leading Jesus back to his home? Perhaps here is another reason why Jesus is so concerned that the one who touched him be identified. It's likely, as one of the rulers of the synagogue, that Jairus knew or knew of this poor woman and her plight. By the way, did did Jairus hear Jesus call her daughter? That word is the the grown-up version of the very word that Jairus had used a moment earlier when he said, my little daughter is at death's door. Here is also a needful lesson for Jairus. This woman comes with faith. The second thing that we see in this is, is Jairus and his daughter and that aspect of the story. As soon as Jesus dismisses this lady now restored, now healed, now whole, having received her request. Mark says here, while he was still speaking, and Mark then pulls the rug out from under us, so to speak. As he dismisses her after this great healing, we read that a crowd or a group comes through the crowd and up to Jairus with a look of grief on their face. And they deliver the news that any parent would dread to hear. Verse 35, they say, your daughter is dead. What seemed like a lost cause when you set out earlier is now certainly a lost cause. The little girl had been at death's door, and now they say she's passed through it. It's over. It is as lost a cause as you could imagine. And they say, because of that, why trouble the teacher any further? Let's just call this off. There's no reason for him to come to the house now. While she was still alive, there was a slim hope. Now there's not. And Jesus overhears them. And then in verse 36, we read this. Overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, Do not fear, only believe. And those words are both a command and a comfort. The command, fear not, is the most often uttered command in the scripture. Which is interesting because most people don't think of that as a command. When people think of the commands in scripture, especially non-Christians, they think of those commands that intrude on their freedom. Do this, don't do that. Many think that Christianity is is just a bunch of rules given by a, a sour, angry God whose sole purpose is to take all the fun out of life. So it's very enlightening to learn that what God tells us more than any of the other commands is do not fear. And the other part of that has to come right along with it. He says do not fear, only believe. And that's what he says to Jairus. 
After the news comes that his daughter's died, do not fear, only believe. Jairus, you've just seen the faith of this woman, this woman in the crowd. You need to have the same faith. Believe me. Believe in me. The only way, beloved, that we can cease to fear is to begin to believe. To believe God is the end of fear. And then Jesus has everyone else stay back. He takes with him Peter and James and John, the text tells us. We have to move a little quickly here. The inner circle of of his apostles, along with the girl's father, they approach the house. And when he does, as they come to the house, he hears the commotion inside, wailing and weeping and crying of others who have come to Jairus' house. But these people who have come, who he hears, are professionals. They're professional mourners, professional weepers. It was required. There was actually a rabbinical requirement that every family, regardless of financial status, had to hire at least a minimum level of mourners when someone died. And these mourners would come and they would do just what these mourners are doing. They're out here at the home of Jairus mourning the passing of this little girl. But Jesus, of course, knows what he is about to do and he tells him to be quiet. Why are you making a commotion and weeping, he says. He says, the child's not dead but sleeping. This is not the end, as you suppose. This is transitory. She will get over this. Now, these people, these professional mourners, were professional mourners. They were around death all the time. They know what a dead body looks like as as compared to a sleeping body. One of the most common euphemisms for death in the ancient world was that they had fallen asleep. We read that throughout the the scriptures because of the similarity of the appearance between a person, a sleeping person and a dead person. But that's not what Jesus means. He is clearly saying the girl is not dead. Her cause is not yet so lost as you think. At which point, verse 40 tells us that the mourners turn into hecklers. And they begin to laugh at Jesus, it says. Verse 40, and they laughed at him. I like the King James. It says, and they laughed him to scorn. He's ridiculous. Jesus ignores it. And he takes the three disciples and the mother and the father of this girl and they go into where she is lying. And for the second time in that day, Jesus allows himself to be made ritually unclean. The first time by allowing himself to be touched by the lady, the unclean lady in the crowd. That would have made Jesus ceremonially unclean, ritually unclean. Now here, by him actively touching a dead body. A no-no, according to Levitical law. And also something that would render him ritually unclean. But as with the woman in the crowd, now with this lady, or with this girl here, instead of Jesus being defiled when he touches the little girl, he gives cleanness to her, as he did to the woman. 
Verse 41, taking her by the hand, he said to her, Talitha kumi, which means, little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately the girl got up and began walking, for she was 12 years of age, and they were immediately overcome with amazement. I love that Mark points this out, and I love to point it out too, that this precious little girl didn't have to, after Jesus gave life back to her, didn't have to remain bedridden until she got her strength back. But she, and here's Mark's favorite word again, immediately got up and began walking. Completely restored at the touch of Christ. And the reaction, as always, and can you blame them, was that they were immediately overcome with amazement. And Jesus says, as before, don't tell anyone about this. But put her back on her regular routine. In fact, start by giving her something to eat. And so we learn this morning in both situations that God is the God of seemingly impossible situations, very, really impossible by any other means. We've seen two people this morning in desperate situations who do not hesitate to come to Christ in their desperation. And we see two instances here where Jesus encourages that action and two instances where Jesus shows himself to be the God of lost causes, to have authority over sickness and here even over death. So Jesus has shown himself to have authority over sickness, over demons, over nature and the powers of nature and instilling the storm, and over even death. He has the authority to forgive sins. So we're seeing a beautiful, powerful picture of who Christ is being built up here. But let us remember this morning that we were all lost causes. We were all without hope. We were all without the ability to help ourselves. Doomed. Doomed to death. Doomed to suffer punishment for sin. But then Christ touched us. Christ worked in us through the Spirit. And as a result, let us not as his people, let us not fear in the midst of any trouble that we face. Do not fear, as Jesus said, but only believe. Believe in God. Believe in Christ. For salvation, do not fear. Only believe in Christ. And for every trouble we face, face it, beloved, trusting in the God of lost causes. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you that you are a God who is not limited by the things that limit us, by the things that limit your creation, but that what seems impossible for us is not impossible for you, that what seems a lost cause for us is not for you. We thank you that you have given to us these encouraging words this morning. And we pray that you would continue to draw us to yourself. As we come to the Lord's Supper in a moment, remind us through this supper 
that you have done what only you could do by sending your son to die for us in order that we who were lost causes by cause of, because of our sin might be drawn to you and given a great salvation. We ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen.